Welcome to the TCW Investment Perspectives Podcast. I'm Anisha Goodley, Portfolio Specialist for TCW's Emerging Markets Group in Los Angeles. Last week, several of our Emerging Markets Sovereign Analysts attended the IMF World Bank Spring Meetings, where public and private sector representatives discussed a wide range of issues that impact the global economy, from the growth outlook, economic development, and debt sustainability. Today, we're here to discuss key takeaways from the meetings with Dave Levenger, our Asia Sovereign Analyst, and Brett Rowley, our Middle East and Africa Analyst. Brett and Dave, thanks for joining us today to share your thoughts. Thanks, Anisha. Happy to be here. Thanks, Anisha. Good to be with you. I'm really excited for this conversation. So just to set the stage, you've been attending the IMF meetings for over 20 years. And it's a really, we know it's a really important forum because the participants include a mix of central bankers, finance ministers, private sector investors, and academics. And there's really no shortage of issues these days to discuss. So I'm very curious, what was the tone like? What were people focused on? What were they excited about? What were they worried about? Just tell us a little bit about your broad observations. Dave, I'll kick it off with you. Thanks, Anisha. You know, I'd say the thing that people were most excited about were to be back in Washington and back together. Um, I'd say last spring, maybe people were 50% back. In the fall, they were 75% back. Last week, they were 110% back. Uh, U.S. and foreign officials, officials from the IMF, World Bank, and investors. And I'd say particularly for us, nothing beats getting together with foreign officials face-to-face. The IMF, definitely one of the themes the IMF uh, was pushing was downside risks in the U.S., the risk of a hard landing, the risk because of persistent inflation and tight labor markets, the Fed will have to keep rates higher for longer, and the potential downside risk coming from a credit crunch in the U.S. financial sector. I'd say most investors seemed more sanguine uh, about the risks, felt that the Fed was getting close uh, to terminal rates, and felt that very forceful action uh, by the Fed and regulators had contained uh, systemic financial risks from in the U.S. and kept those risks from filling, spilling over to the rest of the world. There was more optimism on emerging markets, since that China's undergoing a very strong recovery, at least for this year. India's growing strongly, and you know emerging markets are going to contribute about 80% of global growth this year. Uh, there was a sense that inflation is coming down faster than many people expected in emerging markets. And most emerging markets have already hit peak terminal rates, or will do so soon. And they could uh, start cutting uh, before the Fed does. Thanks, Dave. Brett, did you want to add to that? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with David in the sense that everyone was you know, 110% back. Um, and, and particularly the tone of, of the spring meetings this year uh, compared to October of last year, which was very, very depressing. At that point, you know, everyone was worried about untamed inflation when the Fed, uh, you know, Fed officials were very hawkish and uh, it didn't look like, you know, emerging markets would have access to international capital markets for the foreseeable future. And at the same time, with these higher 
global rates, uh, you've got a lot of rollover risk. And, and so you know, last, last October, there was so much bearishness in the market. You went from meeting to meeting, and it was just more and more depressing. This time around, as, as David mentioned, it was much more constructive. Optimistic stories, um, you know, I think, are still relatively few and far between. But the, the sky is falling mentality was definitely well in the rearview mirror. Well, that's really great to hear. I mean, I think we're certainly seeing that in terms of China and its strong recovery. I actually want to follow up with some points that you just made, uh, Brett, in particular, because you do cover Africa and you do cover some of these these countries that did that were impacted pretty significantly last year by food and energy shocks. So. Many of you have heard us say this before, that we anticipate more dispersion in terms of EM sovereign fundamentals, EM returns. You've got about half the universe that are investment grade, and they've generally been able to navigate this environment, even though you know they do have higher financing costs. But it's been the lower income, lower rated economies that have been, that have been hurt. You've seen an increase in defaults. So if you look at the index, about a third of the index, they do have IMF programs. About 10% of the index is truly distressed. So I'm really curious, you know, you know, when you were having your conversations, what is the future role of the IMF? How do you think it could impact returns? Uh, how does the private sector get involved more, uh, more significantly? Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, sure. It, and and I would just say, just for for context, part of the reason you know we go to these meetings is is to touch base with IMF staff, these policymakers. And, and particularly when countries are, are in programs or negotiating uh, you know, for programs, you'll hear one story from policymakers, and often you'll hear another story from the IMF. And, and you know, I look at my role as to figure out what the spread is between those two conversations. You know, what are the gaps between what the IMF is asking for and what officials are willing to give? The IMF has long been known as the lender of last resort. And so when countries get into a bind, uh, you know, the IMF will hopefully be there to help them get back on track, um, but it comes with conditionalities. And, and what we've seen is, you know, particularly in the pan- with the pandemic, you know, a lot of these countries were not able to give the fiscal response that developed countries uh, were able to. And, and as a result, you know, several of these countries have come under uh, a lot of debt distress. You fast forward, even though we, we're on the other side of the pandemic right now, Global interest rates are a lot higher. You've got more debt maturing, and and so this rollover risk is even greater. And and so the question is, how are some of these countries going to be able to move forward if, if they're having to pay so much for their uh, debt service costs? And and so the IMF and in, in the World Bank have really tried to figure out a way to move forward in this environment. The you know they came up in the midst of the pandemic with the DSSI, the Debt Service Suspension Initiative. Uh, that addressed some immediate liquidity concerns. And then they came up with the common framework, which was hopefully to help bring in, um, you know, not just Paris Club uh, creditors, but uh, Russia, China, or, and Saudi Arabia to, to help them, uh, you know, bring everybody to the table so that we could get some of these restructurings done more smoothly and quickly. Unfortunately, that hasn't been the case. There are a lot of shortcomings with the common framework. I think the key difference in, in these, these meetings that we went to last week is there's finally understanding on what some of those obstacles are and ways that we're going to move forward uh, where some of these, uh, these uh, bilateral creditors and, uh, and official creditors are able to you know, get past some of the, the big differences and hopefully finally we'll get, be able to move forward on, on some of these restructurings that have taken two, three years. 
that's really helpful. And I think what's that that's going to create is some opportunity as we hopefully see some of these turnaround stories. Let me ask something about friendshoring. So we're seeing it probably in every other research report. It seems like we're getting the, you know, we're seeing all this bullishness about friendshoring and the impact on EM. I know you guys both had some conversations at the IMF meetings about this. So, you know, break it down for us. Who's really likely to benefit? What does this look like, especially in the context of some of the geopolitical risks that's out there right now? Yeah, so this was actually a very interesting discussion uh, at the spring meetings. Friendshoring was part of a broader uh, discussion about the rise in trade and investment barriers and financial sanctions that we've seen over the last several years. A lot of this being driven by great power competition between the U.S. and China, and obviously also the war in Ukraine, but I think also driven by kind of in a lot of countries, including the U.S., declining support for open trade policies. The IMF had a fancy word for this. They called it uh, geoeconomic fragmentation. But this, I think, was one of the first times I've seen the IMF push back against this trend of uh, rising trade and investment uh, restrictions. They came out with a couple, I thought, important studies you know, highlighting while there are definitely valid national security concerns, it's really important that these restrictions are, are targeted well. Um, you want to limit the collateral damage, uh, particularly to other countries. And, you know, they highlighted the costs of uh, some of these trade and investment restrictions that aren't always taken into account by foreign policy or national security uh, officials. Definitely, Anisha, I think, you know, there are going to be some clear beneficiaries as investment, you know, moves away from China, you know, India, Mexico are two emerging markets uh, that come to mind. But I think the IMF's big message is if we really have French shoring, we're going to have more uh, investment going between advanced economies, and we're going to have less investment in the aggregate going from advanced economies uh, to emerging markets. The important message that, you know, I have to say wasn't particularly welcome in parts of Washington, D.C., is that these policies, yeah, they hurt China, but they hurt the U.S. and they hurt the rest of the world if they're not kind of narrowly designed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think those are really important points because it's not necessarily just DM straight into EM and the broad universe benefits. There may be a few countries that could benefit. It's going to take time in any case, but to your point, it might be more advanced economies to advanced economies. And I think that part might be getting missed, um, you know, in terms of the dialogue right now. I want to pivot as well. So, and back to you, Brett. So I want to talk a little bit more about climate finance. And we know that emerging markets countries are among the most vulnerable to climate change. We know that they need capital. You've seen an, uh, you know, an increase in labeled bond issuance, which has its challenges. So tell us about the conversations on that front and also the opportunities on that front for investors to really you know, capture some of these opportunities. Yeah, sure. And and I would say this is one of the bright spots um, or, or potential bright spots for uh, for emerging markets generally, and I would say for Africa specifically. Africa is, is probably the most vulnerable region to the impact of climate change, and yet they've got probably the, the fewest resource to, resources to actually deal with it themselves. 
you know, going back to the previous question about what role does the IMF play? Well, they've come up with this new resilience and sustainability trust so that countries will be able to access up to 100% of their quota uh, you know, to if if they come up with uh, with policies that can help mitigate the impact of of climate change, so that's one aspect. The World Bank is is obviously involved as well in in trying to help finance some projects. I think one area that we've seen a lot of progress uh, as as some of these frontier markets meet with investors, uh, whether they're doing roadshows to issue a new bond, uh, even if it's not a labeled bond, uh, you know, whether green or sustainable. Almost every single issuer now has at least one or two slides in their pitch book on their uh, on their goals, uh, whether it's sustainable goals that what they're doing to impact climate the impact of climate change, uh, and and so at least the conversation is actually happening, which is which is a huge difference from uh, four or five years ago. The one thing I will say with most of Africa, there there are a handful of countries that have actually issued uh, you know, green bonds or sustainable bonds. The vast majority of governments are talking about them, but that, that greenium, so the, the, the extra or, or the, the amount that they would, uh, the discount that they would get for, um, for printing this labeled bond isn't sufficient yet for them to actually go through the extra work required to not only print the bond, but to actually have somebody to set up the website to to go through the regulations to maintain it, and and so for for most African issuers, yeah, it's it's just still too expensive for them to really consider issuing these type of bonds. Even though I do think that is is definitely the future. There's uh, a lot of potential for uh, for this market. So far, it's uh, it's untapped potential. Brett and Dave, thank you so much for joining today. I think there's some really key points that you've shared with us. So one, you know, after going to these meetings for 20 years, I know you guys have a lot of insight into into the setup and the the attendees. It's nice to hear that the tone is a little bit better this t- this time around, especially given the overall environment. Seems like there are going to be some opportunities in terms of debt restructuring. You know, you had a major repricing last year, and there could be some some turnarounds on the back of that seems like there's opportunity also in climate finance, but we do need some infrastructure to be created on that front. And then I think it's what was really interesting was also just how you really parsed through some of the dialogue in the market these days versus what is actually really happening. So Dave, to your point about French shoring, that might be advanced economies to other advanced economies. Let's not get too bullish about some of these opportunities, but recognize that you know countries like Mexico and India over the long term could could benefit. I want to thank everyone for joining us today. Uh, And if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out. Thank you for joining us today on TCW Investment Insights. For more insights from TCW, please visit tcw.com slash insights. This material is for general information purposes only and does not constitute an offer to sell or solicitation of an offer to buy any security. TCW, its officers, directors, employees, or clients may have positions in securities or investments mentioned in this publication, which positions may change at any time without notice. While the information and statistical data contained herein are based on sources believed to be reliable, we do not represent that it is accurate and should not be relied on as such, or be the basis for an investment decision. The information contained herein may include preliminary information and or, quote, forward-looking statements, end quote. Due to numerous factors, actual events may differ substantially from those presented. TCW assumes no duty to update any forward-looking statements or opinions in this document. 
Any opinions expressed herein are current only as of the time made and are subject to change without notice. Past performance is no guarantee of future results.